0: Thank you, Jesus, and Bob Dylan. (laughs) We're saved because Jesus the Christ entered enemy territory and sacrificed his life for each one of us. Kind of reminds me of... uh, the end of that movie, Saving Private Ryan. Remember, Captain John Miller is sent into enemy territory where he ends up sacrificing his life in order to save Private uh, James Ryan. In this scene, John Miller uh, lies dying symbolically on a bridge, a bridge uh, that symbolizes our journey from bondage to freedom. And as he dies, these are his dying words, to Private Ryan. What, sir?
1: James Earn this.
0: this morning, because Jesus the Christ sacrificed his life for each one of us, forming a bridge from bondage to freedom. And yet Jesus didn't just die of physical death like Captain Miller. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone that is hanged upon a tree. Jesus was hanged on a tree in our place. And he washes us clean in his very own blood, which saves us from the wrath of come, to come and, and, and from death by fire. And so we've gathered here this morning in front of a representation of that sacrifice, his tree, the cross, his body, and his blood, a constant reminder of the one who sacrificed his life for each one of us kind of reminds me of this interview that I recently saw upon the news.
1: Last week, Carmine Washington lost a true hero when firefighter Sam Kelty was tragically killed in the line of duty, saving the life of Melanie Wilkerson. On the Onion News Networks today, now, this morning, Jim and Tracy interviewed Melanie for the first time about her dramatic rescue. I'm so thankful to Mr. Kelty for saving me. Oh, he made such a sacrifice, didn't he? Now, obviously, a lot of people are hearing this incredible story and wondering, was it worth it? Will Melanie now become as great a person as Sam Kelty was, or would it have been better if she had died in the fire? Oh, um, now, Melanie, nothing you've done in your 15 years of life will justify the death of Sam Kelty. What are you prepared to do to to show that his death was worth it? Um... Well, you maybe want to be a hero, Melanie, or or maybe join the fire department and carry on Sam's work.
0: I haven't really been thinking about it. Hmm.
1: You haven't thought about it. The doctor said I should focus on getting better. Have you ever saved a life, Melanie? No. Oh, because some would say if you don't save at least one other life at some point, it's a net loss. Where do you plan to be in five years? What are your goals? I want to go to college. Hmm. How will your going to college help fill the void left in the lives of Sam's widow and his children who are now going to grow up without a father because of you? I, I don't know. My mom said there must be a reason why God wants me on this earth. Oh, so it's up to you to figure out what God wants you to do or you'll be letting down God himself. Well, Melanie, of course, we can't know yet whether or not your life will measure up to the the tragic loss of Sam's, but what we do know is that today now has commissioned the building of a 20-foot bronze statue of Sam to be put on your front lawn as a constant reminder of the man who gave his life to save yours. You're welcome. (laughs) Feels a little like church sometimes, huh?
0: That's satire, in case you didn't know. Love that. How will you justify the life of Sam? In other words, do you hear what they're saying, though? Melanie, how are you going to earn it? Is that what this Christian life is all about? Is that what this constant reminder is all about? Do we justify the death of, of Jesus? I mean, did he die in order to imprison us to shame so that we would live out our life under the authority of, like, the proverbial Jewish mother-in-law, so, mother, so, so we'd spend our entire life writing thank-you notes to family members we didn't love? I mean, did he die in order to imprison us to shame or set us free from shame? I mean, this is what we say. You're saved by grace. Yeah, yeah, but what's the catch? What's the catch? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to understand or at least see what you have done. We pray that you would help us to preach gospel. Good news in Jesus name. Amen. You hear it all the time. Salvation is free. You're saved by grace! But what's the catch? I mean, everything has a catch. A few weeks ago, Susan and I and our friends Andrew and Ann, we we all went out to dinner at uh, Maggiano's because we were promised a free dinner. Free, free, free! All we had to do was listen to this long presentation on fire safety while we ate. A presentation that filled us with all sorts of fear and shame if we didn't buy a bunch of $700 smoke alarms in order to protect our children from the fire. I mean, don't you love your children? And besides, you get a free dinner. (laughs) Everything has a catch. In Islam, you get 72 virgins, if you're a guy, I mean, 72 virgins. Uh, however, you have to obey Sharia and die a martyr. In Judaism, um, you get to enter uh, the land, but what's the catch? You have to fulfill all the law, which is even tougher than Sharia. Oh, in Buddhism, man, and in Hinduism, you get nirvana. But, but, what's, but what's the catch? Well, meditating in a cave, appeasing 10,000 gods. I mean, you know I'm oversimplifying, but you get my drift. What's the catch? What's the catch in Christianity? Guilt? Shame? Good works? Making good choices? Wait, is it faith? I mean, trying really, really, real hard. Trying really hard to have faith. What's the catch? Christian TV? Polyester? There must be a catch. We say you're saved by grace. It's free, free, free. And yet on Resurrection Sunday, one guy is missing Judas is missing. There must be a catch. John 13. It's the Last Supper, the night before Jesus dies. We're at that spot in John, preaching through John. Now before, or just before the feast of the Passover, when the Jews knew that his hour, or when Jesus knew, sorry, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Literally, he loved them into the Tell us. Some translated, He loved them to the utmost. How does God love us? An old Dutch priest used to tell a story about when he was a child and he overheard his father talking to the neighbor in the kitchen. The neighbor asked his father, Joe, um, you got 13 children. 13. Which one's your favorite? I mean, surely you have to have a favorite. Which one, Joe, do you love the most? And the old priest tells how as a child, he pressed his ear against the door and he heard his father's response. Well, that's easy, he said. It'd be Mary. Mary's, well, she just got braces and she's so... Embarrassed. She won't even go out of the she won't even go out of the house. But you asked me my favorite. Well that would that, 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 that would have to be Michael. Michael is so uncoordinated. He's so awkward. And all the other boys, they tease him. He's no good at sports. He's just so, so ashamed. But you asked me my favorite. The apple of my eye. Susan. She's twenty-four lives in the city alone, and I think she's developing a drinking problem. Well, I just, I just cry for Susan. But my favorite, well, my favorite, and the, the old priest would share how he uh, listened to his father go on and um, mention every one of his children by name. And then he would say, what I learned that day, was that the one my father loved the most? Was the one that happened to need him the most at the time? Well, now, I don't know that we can quantify our Heavenly Father's love like that as most and least or whatever. However, Jesus is the one that says he leaves the 99 in the wilderness in order to go seek and to save the one, the lost the perished. And I know how I feel about my own kids. I remember this one day about 18 years ago. I was at this lovely outdoor backyard dinner party in Northern California. Uh, Lots of people there. I was dressed up uh, all nice, uh, drinking some wine, enjoying some hors d'oeuvres, when I happened to hear something kind of over to my left. And so I glanced to my left and all at once, All my attention, all my energy, all my love was focused on one place, the bottom of the deep end of the pool. From the bottom of the pool, under the waves, under the water, in the deep, I saw my two-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. And in a moment... Without any thought, without any hesitation, I dove into that pool because, you see, at that moment, it was impossible for me to enjoy the banquet and remain at the party for everything in me wanted to be with Elizabeth in the bottom of the pool. And please understand, it was her fault. I had lectured her. I had warned her. I had laid down the law time and time again. You see, at that moment, none of that mattered. And so in about 15 seconds, I was uh, down and up on the side of the pool, drenched and yet holding my two-year-old daughter so tightly in my arms, close to my chest, listening to her breathe through the sobs and the tears and the snot and the crying, praising God that she was alive. And at that moment, I loved her most. And saving her was my favorite thing in all the world. Years ago, when my son Coleman was a little boy in Sunday school one morning, I think it was probably Sandy Schumacher, she asked the kids, it was... uh, Mother's Day, she asked them, "Um, what's your mommy's favorite thing? They went around the room, and when they got to Coleman, Coleman said, my mommy's favorite thing is cleaning me up. (laughs) Cleaning me up. According to Scripture, according to the Revelation, Jesus cleans us up with his own blood, the blood of the Lamb. In the 14th century, in her famous vision, Julian of Norwich heard Jesus say this, to have ever suffered the passion for you is for me a great joy, a bliss, an endless delight, and I, if I could suffer more, I would do so. I mean, maybe, maybe he loves to love you. Suffering hurts, grace is costly, diving in swimming pools at nice parties will get you wet and wreck your clothes, but maybe cleaning us up, saving us, is for Jesus an endless delight. He loved them to the utmost. He loved them into perfection. He loved them into Talos. And on the cross, he cried out, Tetelestai, it is telos. It is finished, it is perfected, it is completed. Completed. Well, that would mean there's nothing left to earn. The only thing left to earn is nothing. So what's the catch? He loved them to the telos during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things into his hands. Now, remember John six thirty seven. Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Dang. The father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God... And was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his garments and, taking a towel, tied the towel around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In that day, when people would go to a fancy feast, like the Passover feast, they would bathe before the feast. But on the way to the feast, their feet would get dirty. At a formal feast, guests would recline on their left elbow and eat with their right hand and that would mean that their feet would be sticking out outside that, that, that table. Normally at a fancy feast, people would have a slave and not just a Jewish slave. They thought this task was too demeaning for a Jewish slave. They would have a Gentile slave, wash the guest's feet. Well, at this supper, Luke records that the disciples had been arguing about who was the greatest, and then Jesus does this. He becomes a slave. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, "'What I am doing you do not understand now, "'but afterward you will understand.' Peter said to him, "'You will never wash my feet, And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part, no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, well, then not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, that that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand? Knowing all things, he left the feast, stripped himself of his own robe, took the form of a slave, and washed their feet. In the morning, He'd be stripped of his robe, crucified as a slave, and wash away the sins of the entire world with his blood. When we're baptized we profess that cleansing. When we come to uh, communion, we have a constant reminder of that cleansing. John says he, he did this during the Last Supper, and John's already told us that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, and so now he's revealing what that means. But you see, it's not just some theological concept. When we see it, it changes every moment of our lives. It's a revelation of love, it's grace. But there's a catch. Next verse. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Like Jesus washed their feet. Like Mary washed Jesus' feet with perfume in the last chapter. Like the prostitute had washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair in the Gospel of, of, of Luke, like, like that. But, but now, check this out. None of them did that out of fear or shame or obligation. Those women weren't earning one thing. It was not required of them. So being required to wash people's feet is not the catch. And yet, do you remember how offended everyone got when that foot washing, feet washing thing was going on? I mean, there must have been some catch. Verse 15: For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, literally in the Greek, it's slave. And check this out: slaves don't own anything. And so, slaves cannot earn anything. I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Now, check this out. All the Gospels make it clear, including John, that Jesus chose all 12 disciples. Every Gospel makes that clear, and yet one of them Is not clean. His feet have been washed, but he's not clean. In a little while, Jesus will say to the eleven remaining, You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. But in this one, it appears that the word, the eternal seed, had not yet found a place. Perhaps he was full of himself. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Paradidomai. Paul reveals that we all parodidomai him, betray him, every time we sin. And what is sin? Well, we know that it's like taking the good from a tree as if it were your own. Remember what the snake said? He said to the to the woman, take and make yourself in God's image. In other words, judge yourself. Save yourself. Create yourself. Justify yourself with works of the law and the power of the flesh. In other words, earn it. And be proud. Verse 22. The disciples looked at one another. Uncertain of whom Jesus spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, we think that's John, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Isn't that amazing? They didn't know who it was. That means that this fellow did not look like Adolf Hitler or Hugh Hefner. He looked like everybody else. And so John would have leaned his head back on Jesus' chest like this and said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so, you see, Judas appears to be on Jesus' left. And it was customary to place the honored guest on the left of the host of the feast and customary for the host to honor that honored guest with a choice morsel. So, do you get the picture? Judas was at the Last Supper, and Jesus washed his feet just like he washed everybody else's feet. And Jesus served him communion just like he served everybody else communion. In fact, Jesus gave him the choice morsel. And I'm sure that he did not say earn it for he knew that he could not. It's astounding. It's amazing. It's limitless love with no catch. And yet it's judgment and that's quite a catch. Remember Paul taught that the Lord's table is judgment? Well, Judas takes the bread and despises the bread. Next verse. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, "'What you are going to do, do quickly.'" Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night was night. Judas leaves to betray Jesus. The next thing that happens is Peter vows that he will never deny Jesus. And before the night is over, all of the disciples abandon Jesus. Why does Jesus love these guys? Traitors, every one of them, with stinky feet. (laughs) And Jesus Which one do you love the most? Oh, that would have to be John, (laughs) my beloved disciple. Oh, he has a temper. I have to keep a constant eye on John. Oh, but you said, who do I love the most? The apple of my eye. Peter. Peter is like a... A bowl of Jello. That's how solid and dependable (laughs) Peter is. But, but, but the one that I love the the one I love the my favorite my the one I love the most. Well, that, that would have to be Judas. Is that possible? Would you remember what Jesus calls him later that very night when Judas comes with the guards to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane? He calls him friend. Greater love, most love, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. It's like the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord has absolutely nothing to do with the merit of the person that he's loving. If anything... Their lack of merit just seems to draw love out of him. It's like he bleeds love. So, if he loves you the most, what's the catch? if he seats you in the position of honor and favor, what's the catch? If he chooses to reveal the depths of his love, the depths of his love to you, flowing from his throne, his tree, like a crimson fountain, what's the catch? If he washes you in his life's blood, What's the catch? Well, that night, Peter understood the catch. And when the rooster crowed in the morning, oh, he really understood the catch, and he came undone. Remember what Peter said when Jesus came to wash his feet? You will never wash my feet, never! Now, be honest with me. How many of you have been to one of those Christian foot-washing services? You know what I mean? Raise your hand. The ones where you know that they're going to wash your feet before you come. Okay, how many? How many? Let's see. Now, how many of you washed your feet before you went? Huh? (laughs) Did you? Didn't you? Yeah, I thought so. What does that mean? It wasn't a foot-washing service. It was a foot displaying service. Proud feet. It was pride. How many of you have ever been to one of those Christian communion services? And how many of you tried to wash your sins away before you went? If so, maybe you did not discern the body and blood. Maybe you spurned the body and blood, trying to earn his body and blood. Perhaps you drank judgment upon yourself. Do you think you can earn this? Well, to have his feet washed, Peter had to admit that they were dirty. But it wasn't just that. It was that Jesus was the one doing the washing. The king of glory became a slave and washed Jesus' feet. I mean, that's an insult to Peter's entire view of reality. So it's not just Peter's feet that are dirty. It's his heart, his mind, his very perception of reality itself. It's dirty, or at least has been dirty. And so he cries out, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And do you remember what Jesus says? Peter. Unless I wash you, you have no share in me. And then what does Peter do? (laughs) He invents religion. He invents religion. He says, Oh, if that's what it's about, well, then not just my feet, but do my head, do my hands, do everything. I mean, if we're talking that the game is humility, oh, I will be better at it than any of these guys. Oh, I'll pay for my foot washing with shame and guilt and fear. I'll become your prisoner of shame. Do whatever you want. I'll vow my obedience to you. And what's the next thing Peter does? He vows his obedience. He vows his life He vows to Jesus that he will never deny him And in a few hours he denies him three times The cock crows Jesus looks at Peter And Peter comes undone Jesus said Later you will understand what I am doing to you As the cock crowed And Jesus glanced at Peter with eyes still uh, full of grace, eyes that washed him in grace. You see, I think Peter realized that Jesus loved him and washed him when he was at his worst, and so he did not earn it. And he could never earn it. Peter saw grace at that moment, and it killed him. It killed the Peter that Peter had made. He was undone. And Scripture says he wept bitterly, sobbing, shaking, tears, snot all over the place. When Elizabeth was in grade school, I think you're getting the picture that Elizabeth is my strong-willed daughter. When Elizabeth was in grade school, she got mad at me and Susan about something. She lied to us, and with her friend Ashley next door, they, they ran away. When I found out that she had lied, I was angry. When I found out that she was gone, I was absolutely distraught. Well, fortunately, they only made it a few miles and had already turned around when the Jefferson County Sheriff picked them up out on Highway 285. After he dropped the prodigal girls off and asked some questions, I took Elizabeth inside. And of course, she was acting, you know, kind of all tough because she had wanted to go to her own place, uh, away from me. And, and now she figured that she'd just be grounded for life. But for me at that moment, none of that mattered. And so I just picked her up and held her to my chest, just like I had done that day by the pool 10 years before. And so at her moment of deepest failure, my love burned most intense. In fact, it burned her. It burned her pride. Remember, all at once, she just cracked in my arms, sitting on my lap, in her living room, sobbing, shaking, tears, snot, all over the place. I remember looking at her and thinking she was dying. I mean, she looked like she was dying as she's sobbing and shaking. And I remember she cried out, oh, daddy, I love you. I don't ever want to do that again. Which was kinda true, becoming more true. We see Peter saw grace. And it killed him. It killed the Peter that believed he could earn anything. It killed the Peter that thought he could justify himself. It killed the Peter that Peter had built his own place, his prison of pride and fear and shame. It killed him and set him free. And that's the catch. Salvation is free. Grace is free. And we do not. Want to be free. We want to pay. We want to earn it. With every fiber of our flesh, we believe that we must earn it, for the evil eye has become embedded in the very fabric of our world, in the very fabric of every cell within our body. And so, what do we do? We talk and talk and talk about grace, and yet every time we compete, every time we're resentful. Every time we get offended. Every time we're anxious. Every time we defend ourselves. Every time we judge ourselves and judge others. With every bit of energy given to justifying ourselves, we reveal this fact. We do not believe in grace. We do not believe we were created by grace. Saved by grace and sanctified by grace, and thus we deliver grace up for crucifixion. God is grace. The good is grace. And so you see, it's impossible to do the good if you think the good is something that you can do. No one is good but God alone, said Jesus. God is the good. So, if you think you make the good, you end up taking the good, and then you crucify the good on the tree. It's impossible to be saved by grace through faith if you believe that you are responsible for making that faith, for then you have earned that grace. And it is impossible to earn grace because then it's not grace. By definition, grace is free. And that's the catch. The catch is that there is no catch. But that's quite a catch. The judgment is mercy, and yet it really is judgment. Salvation by grace. What's the catch? Salvation by grace. You cannot earn salvation, or it's not salvation. And, 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 and yeah, that lie that you can earn salvation, oh, believe me. That is just profoundly seductive. In fact, it is what drives our entire world. In fact, it is what this world actually calls the good.
1: Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me.
0: See, to uh, kneel in front of a cross and say, Tell me I've earned it? Oh, that's the very heart of old Judas. Offended? Well, that's the catch. It's called grace. It's the scandal of this world, the offense of the cross, grace. And and do you realize that on that night, except for their names, you really, I don't think you could tell a difference between St. Peter, that's the pearly gates guy, and Judas. Jesus thoroughly loved each of them. They were both led astray by Satan himself. They were both offended by grace. So offended, they were driven to sin against the Lord. Both sinned. And if it weren't for the fact that you knew the rest of the story, I bet you would consider Judas to be the better of the two. Why? Because he was responsible. When Judas sees that Jesus is condemned to die... He takes the money back to the temple, and he repents, telling the priests, I've sinned in betraying innocent blood. And do you remember what the priests tell him? What's that to us, Judas? And then they say this, that's your responsibility. And Judas believed them. He believed them. He threw the money back into the temple, and went and hanged himself in the potter's field in the valley of Gehenna. He hanged himself on a tree. He tried to pay. And he earned his way. He earned nothing. He earned darkness. He earned death. He earned the void. Acts 1.25, he went to his own place. Do you want your own place? Peter and Judas were so much alike and yet as different as heaven and hell. One had faith and grace, one did not. One died to himself and one killed himself with himself. One trusted Christ to bear his curse on the tree, and one trusted himself to bear that curse on the tree. One learned that he could not justify himself, and one desperately tried. Peter let Jesus wash away his pride, and Judas did not. And now most folks say, well, and that's the end of old Judas. That's the end of old Judas. I don't think so for Jesus chose Judas and Jesus loved him to the end and Jesus is the end and Hades comes to an end in him And with the blood money, money purchased with Jesus' blood, the priests bought the potter's field in the valley of Gehenna. They bought it with money from the blood of Jesus. And in the new Jerusalem, it lies within the city walls. You see, I suspect that Jesus seeks and saves the lost until there are no more lost. Why? Because he cannot enjoy the party while his loved one drowns in the deep. I'm just saying, I don't think Jesus was done with Judas. But no matter what, I'm sure of this, you you cannot come to the party unless Jesus washes you. About nine years ago, I preached a sermon. It was on grace. They all are, actually, or they're not sermons, but I preached this sermon on the banquet, and then at the end, we uh, had communion, and... I was, you know, getting ready to go, go home, watch some football or something, and Sheila Corley came up to me. I don't know if you remember uh, Sheila, but uh, she grabbed me and she said, Peter, you've got to help me. Something's wrong with Jason, and he's so shaken up, I can't tell what it is. Now, Jason was one of our interns, level-headed, reasonable kind of guy, great guy. So I thought, this is really weird. So uh, Sheila, his wife, led me back into the sanctuary, and sure enough, I found Jason sitting there. Most of the people had left. He was sitting in the seat, like rocking back and forth like this, sobbing, shaking, weeping, crying, tears, snot, all over the place. I remember thinking to myself, what now? But what I said was, Jason, can I pray for you? And he just moaned, oh man, yeah! And so I said, well, Jason, um." What's wrong? And through his tears, through his shaking, this is what he told me. He said, oh, Pete, Pete, I was just sitting here at the end of the service and I looked up and I saw Jesus on the cross. And then he, he like got down off the cross and he walked over here to where I was seated and he, he knelt down in front of me right here and he began to wash my feet. He washed my feet and then he put his arms around me and he just hugged me. And then I remember Jason looked up at me and he just bellowed. He just bellowed, I don't deserve that. You see, it was the judgment of grace. Peter surrendered to it. Judas ran from it. Jason looked up at me, and in just this beautiful agony, he bellowed, Pete! I don't deserve that! And now I don't know what to do! I don't know what to do! I remember I I just stood there looking at him for a minute. And then I laughed. And then I said, well, Jason... What do you want to do? No, I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck. I just knew that at that moment, whatever Jason wanted to do, it would be good, for he would do it with a clean heart. Just close your eyes for a minute. And imagine what's true. Faith is imagining what's true. Some famous theologian said that. But imagine what's true. With every drop of energy, with every attempt to justify yourself, you crucify grace. And now he kneels before you. Just picture him there. His eyes are bright and they're filled with love for you. He bears crimson wounds upon his body. And he has a basin and a towel. Don't promise anything. Do not vow anything. (laughs) Because don't you dare think that you could earn this. Just let him wash you. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying, I took from the Lord what I also delivered up to you that on the night he was delivered up. He took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat in constant remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, and having given thanks, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And later that day, the same day, the way the Jews counted days, Later that day, he hung on a cross, he hung on the tree, from which issued a fountain that would cover the land to the depths of a horse's bridle, a crimson fountain that was his blood, which washes away the sins of the world, and with his dying breath upon that tree, he did not say, earn this. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, and it is finished. And into your hands I commend my spirit. And so come to the table and enjoy the banquet, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it was St. Augustine and also Martin Luther and a whole bunch of others that, that said this, um, love God and do what you want. You see, if you love God, you fulfill the entire law. So, if you look around and, and you realize, gosh, I'm not fulfilling the law, well, well you don't love God. But don't panic, He loves you, okay? Uh, you don't love Him very much. And so, what do you do at that point? Well, do you try and do you try and do you try? Do you try to earn it? Well, everything you try to earn, you see, you're stealing glory from God, your very creator. No, you can't earn that. So what do you do? You let Him wash you. You cannot earn a new heart. He gives you a new heart as He washes you. And He will finish what He started. Because He loves you to the end. He loves you into perfection. (laughs) He's good. So in Jesus' name, Believe the gospel and live free. Amen.